Good morning. Welcome to Battleground this morning. I ask you to take your Bibles and turn with me to James chapter 5. If you're, if you're paying attention, I, I, I'm sure I've said this before and I'll say it again. Every time a pastor gets to the end of a book that he's preached, there's, there's a certain amount of excitement but a certain amount of sadness because I'm down to the last page of this of the James letter and, and I pray that it's been a good study for you and we're not done. Uh, James has a lot to say in this last chapter and we're going to try to ring it out for all of its goodness this morning. Just as you find your places, I would just point this to you. This is called our pledge card. We have voted unanimously to to move forward and renovate our worship space on the other side. Eventually, we'll be worshiping together over there. And as the pattern of Scripture tells us, our leaders are pledging first. And so if you're a leader, um, your card should be turned in today. And I just wanted to make that aware for you, too. There's a basket in the lobby for that. Um, James chapter 5. Adequate in all kinds of ways that we're talking about our relationship with wealth today. And so let's stand to our feet in honor of God's word. This is not some kind of a dry tradition that we do. We are standing in reverence to this. When when God's word speaks, God speaks. And so let us hear from the word of God this morning. We're going to look at the first six verses. James chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. James says this, Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you, and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person, and he does not resist you. This is the word of God. Lord, as we come to you, with, as our hands are open and we are on our feet in reverence to your word, we confess our need of your wisdom to be able to apply this text, Lord, in so many various ways, of which I can only touch a few today. And so, Lord, help us not to use people and love money, to love people and use our wealth to advance your kingdom. And so, Lord, apply this to our hearts today and to our lives and to our checkbooks and to our relationships and those places that needs to be applied. Lord, your Holy Spirit work in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've sort of grabbed this last section in James and couched it under the, the, the umbrella of a worldview or how do we view life? How do we live life in a fallen, broken world? Uh, James has a lot to say here, and if you've got your sermon notes, it should be at the top. We saw last week that we should live life in humble dependence, humble dependence on the Lord, not in arrogant independence. Uh, 
we're going to talk about today, I've got the word integrity there. If you're taking notes, I, I, I like the word purity, that we should live life with financial purity. There is an unhealthy way that we can live life in relationship to our wealth, in relationship to other people. And those two things always intersect. We're going to see next week that we should live life with patient endurance, helping us understand that this Christian life is a hard life. We should live life with honesty and integrity. Going to look at that in verse 12 and verse 13. We should be people of constant prayer. And, and we're going to close out James by saying we should live in active accountability with other believers. Today, financial integrity, financial honesty. Another way I like the word purity. Purity. How am I dealing with my relationship with my finances, with my money? And people, and what happens when those two things collide? Uh, he's given us some illustrations here about last week a businessman goes on a trip, and this week he's talking about someone that we might hire, or maybe you were hired by somebody to work for a certain amount of pay, and then when you get there, they defraud you, they don't pay you. Or they say, I'm gonna pay you under the table which means they're not going to pay the government anything, and when you get to be an old person, you'll have no Social Security to depend on because they're not paying it. Maybe we need a better example. If you live long enough, this has been your reality. The patriarch of the family dies, right? And what happens next? World War III happens next. When all the children begin to fight about what's left behind. You see, that's what happens when there is a clash between a love of money and your love of people. Whatever you love most always wins. And sometimes we are the participant, sometimes we are the victims. Have you ever stepped between somebody and their money <laughs> and seen what happens? So, this is important to this text today, because it, it starts out, did you feel that when I started reading, you're sitting there going, man, James is, who's he talking to, right? It's a good question, and you know, people that write books and commentaries love to argue about such things. Who is he talking to? There's two potential possibilities. Professing believers have embraced a fallen worldview, in other words, there are people who profess to be believers that are actually defrauding and cheating people. There's also a second, that those that are being oppressed by the fallen are being spoken to here. They are the ones that are being victimized. And so James, as it is prophetically, is speaking to the abusers and comforting the abused with the justice of God. I think if you look ahead one week, if you look at the next text, you look down at verse 7, you see that there is a call to be patient in suffering, which leads me to believe that the primary context here is that these believers are being oppressed. Um, but make no mistake, James has told us of the tendency of this church and of us to vary in every generation just a little bit compromise, just a little bit. And where do we lead? So let me give you a quote. I'm going to talk about um, both of them because I believe both of them apply. 
Listen to this. Frederick Douglass, if you don't know him, you should read some of his writings. He was a slave that escaped his slaveholders and went up north and rode and fought against slavery when slavery was still going on. And this is what he wrote. Quote, I love the pure, peaceable, and impartial Christianity of Christ. I therefore hate the corrupt, slave-holding, women-whipping, cradle-plundering, partial, and hypocritical Christianity of this land. Indeed, I can see no reason but the most deceitful one for calling the religion of this land Christianity. I look upon its climax of all misnomers, the boldest of all frauds, and the grossest of all libels. He was indicting the tendency of someone who says they are a believer of Jesus Christ, but then they are whipping a black believer or a black unbeliever. All the time going to church professing Christ. Dividing families and treating people like property. Here's the question. Could James not have a word for those that are being whipped and those that are whipping? I think he does. I think he has a word. What do we do when we see somebody being taken advantage of? And what do we do when we're the one being taken advantage of? We're all tempted, you see, to look at the wealthy, wicked people and say, it seems that it's paying off. And so we can gradually begin to compromise, either to escape persecution or to embrace a lifestyle that seems to be worth it. And so... Here's what I want you to see this morning. Faith must persevere by heeding the warnings of riches. Through the confidence in God's justice, we should fight for the powerless. Here's another way of saying it. James is simply trying to get us to understand that this fallen worldview just does not make sense if we have a God who is just, and we do. And if we have a God who is just, then there's not a way in this world or the next that he is not going to make all things right. So James says we need to heed four warnings. And we need to understand there's two promises that are guaranteed in Scripture. Four warnings to heed. First, look at number one in your notes. Hoarding earthly treasure is futile. So look at verses two and three. It says, your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. He's saying that hoarding treasure is leading to corruption. So the, the things that in that day that were wealth was food, Expensive clothing and precious metals. That's why he uses this as an illustration. And if you're going to understand this text today, where if you're going to crab in James's mind and understand it, you have to see this in three ways. He's using these things metaphorically to point to, point to something as an illustration. He's using them eschatologically. And he's using them prophetically. Now, what do I mean by eschatologically? It means that he is talking about things that are coming in the future, but he's speaking of them as if they're in the present. He's also speaking prophetically, not only talking to believers who are oppressed, but he's talking to those who oppress them. And you can see that in the Old Testament and the prophets. He's speaking prophetically. He's, he's using a, a way things that we all understand. Our stuff goes bad. Our cash 
You've heard of inflation. About to get a little lesson on that again if we've forgotten. Our cars, right? Got one car that's got 150,000 miles. You just never know what's going to happen to it. They don't last forever. All of our consumables, if we store them up thinking something bad's going to happen, the next thing you know, we open it up, either they're bad or the ants have got in it. That's what he's saying. He's, he's saying, he said these Christians are looking around at this, these people that seem to be their lifestyles is paying off. They're walking around with all of the abundance of all of their wealth of that day. He's saying wealthy have a greater responsibility because they are post-cross. You see, Jesus came, Hebrews 1. All of prophetic history, all of redemptive history climaxed in the sending of His Son. That has already happened. Matter of fact, in Acts, the Pentecost has already come. This is the last days. We'll talk more about that in a minute. And yet, they are still living their life, storing up treasures in a place where it is promised. Nothing you store up is going to keep. He's, he's applying what we talked about last week. That guy who said, I got so much stuff. I got to build bigger barns. He's saying, you're going, you've put all of your stuff in your barns only to go out there one day and it's all molded and rot. And that is where you have placed your heart. That's where your love is. In things that will not last. I said this before. The stock market has lost all the gains that it had. That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying. Chapter 1 and verse 10. You remember what he has said? He said, let the, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Why? Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises in its scorching heat, withers the grass, and its flowers fall and its beauty perishes. That's the image. Just doesn't make sense. James is prophesying too, though. He's not just simply talking about something. He's saying that even the gold and the silver will become corrupted. That was something that everybody, even to this day, still hold in because it, it never goes bad. You, you could have some impurities in it, but it can always be made pure. It won't mold. He's prophesying that there is coming a day that God will empty everything that people put their lives in, including the most solid, and He will empty them of its value. And that day is God's judgment day, where nothing on this earth means anything. And so listen, this is important to grab the, the way this flow of thought for James is. One generation tried to ensure that the next generation would not have to struggle. And what happens? You tell me what's happened. The next generation is corrupt, is spoiled, and wasteful. Starts a place, never stops there. It's going to end up being corrupted. And he's saying that is a foolish thing to do because this corruption, this moral corruption, always leads to condemnation. See that in verse 3. Your gold and silver have corroded. And their corrosion, listen, will be evidence against you and it will eat up your flesh. So this corruption, this, this rust, think about that. You got this nice, beautiful car, 
sooner or later you're going to go out there and you see this little bubble up underneath one of the fenders and you look at it. What is that? That's rust. It's started from the inside and it's just now coming out. It's been there all along. He's saying this rust is giving it a voice. And this rust of all this stuff, this mold, all this corruption, all your stuff that accumulated one day on that day will be given a voice and will bear witness against you. This is figurative language. What we treasure in this life echoes into the next. What we treasure in this life will bear witness in the next. Listen, this is the clearest scripture. Either to our blessing or to our condemnation. Verse 3 says, you have laid up treasures in the last days. This is sort of his summary statement of why this lifestyle, this view of life simply doesn't make sense. Because Jesus Christ has come. Because he has lived, died, and rose again. Because he has, because he's resurrected, promises he will return. And we can count on it. Because the Spirit of God has already been prophesied to come and has come at Pentecost. And so we live in the last days now. Every time I open up the Bible and preach in the New Testament, I am preaching an end times message to end times people. And he's saying, since that is true, don't, don't hoard the second. He says, make no mistake. This moral corruption always leads to active oppression. It never stops with just being morally corrupt or Hoarding wealth. He said it always leads somewhere. Second warning to heed. Defrauding others simply doesn't pay. Verse 4. Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. So notice there is still this witness. First, the rust bears witness. The corrosion bears witness. Now he is saying that there are two more witnesses that are going to be bearing witness. One is the injustice itself. So this, remember, this was an agricultural context. And remember, remember the parable Jesus gave about the farmer who goes out and he hires a, a day laborer. And then he goes out later and hires another one. Goes out to the end of the evening and hires another one. That's sort of the context. These guys were being hired and they were working a, a day's way, day for a day's pay. And that day's pay is what they're going to use when they go home to stop by the market to buy enough food so their family can eat. That was a normal life for the normal guy. And here's what's happening. He was working a day's, but then he was being defrauded. James is not condemning business owners or wealthy. He is condemning a worldview that feels like it's okay to cheat other people to accumulate wealth for yourself. All he's simply doing is echoing God's character that has been revealed in his word from the very beginning. Turn with me to Deuteronomy. I want you to see this. This was the normal life and has always been the normal life for the people of God. Deuteronomy 24, look at verse 14. Deuteronomy 24, verse 14. He says this, You shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy, 
whether he is one of your brothers or one of the sojourners who are in your land within your towns. You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he is poor and counts on it, lest he cry against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. Brothers and sisters, when, when people who profess Christ or people within our influence of authority rips off people because English is not their first language, when they take advantage of people because the people are just ignorant of how things and systems works, what you owe them gives a cry out to the King of the Lord of hosts. It doesn't go away, you see. What you cheated somebody 30 years ago, if that you have not brought that to the cross, is still echoing into eternity. Justice matters to God. Justice has a voice. Truth and fairness screams. See how dangerous it is to believe these things are subjective? Not. They're objective. Bound up in God's very character. What is owed to people cries out to God like Abel's blood. And notice what it cries out to. Look at verse 4. To the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts is seen here as listening. This is important to oppressed people. It's going to be more important to us than it is today. It'll be more important to your children than it is to you. As persecution grows, and if the Bible's true, it will. It's going to be more important to understand that when it feels like God is not listening and who is not doing something, our just God is always paying attention. And He is not ever asleep. He cares about what you've been through. And he has the angel armies behind him. He has the host of resources standing at his call. Exodus 3.9. God's people being oppressed. You remember that story. And now behold the cry of the people. Verse 9. And now behold the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. And I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. And we know that story, don't we? God's a powerful picture of when people are oppressed or abused. God is hearing. Not only do the laborers pay cry out, but the laborers themselves cry out and are heard. You see that? End of verse 4. Keeping at the theme of Exodus. Just listen to this. Exodus 22, 23. This is a powerful word from God here. Exodus 22, verse 23. If you do mistreat them, and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry, and my wrath will burn, and I will kill you with the sword, and your wives shall become widows, and your children fatherless. Does that sound like your God is concerned about those who are being oppressed? And listen, God does not change. So, you see, when we take advantage of those who have no voice in our society, the king of glory takes up their cause. That's what he's teaching us. So make no mistake, brothers and sisters, have nothing to do with people who charge the poor high interest loans, who situate their buildings in poor neighborhoods, 
who give them car title loans and take the titles of their vehicle for a couple hundred dollars and make 300% profit when they repo their car. It's wholesale oppression. Credit card companies trying to appeal to the poor and to college kids to enslave them in a lifetime of debt and slavery. God's paying attention. The Lord of hosts is. And we should have nothing to do with it. It's this picture. You ever have something wrong with your car? Just making that noise. I got one car doing that now and I just can't figure it out. So when I take it to the mechanic, he knows what it sounds like. You know, that tick, 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 tick. You know, oh yeah, this is that problem. Here's what God is saying. I know what injustice sounds like. I know what it looks like. And I'm not going to let it pass. The warning then, if we get to look at number three, the warning is that to oppress others simply doesn't pay. Living in self-centered luxury is a poor decision. That's what he's saying. Look at verse 5. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your heart in the day of slaughter. So the issue is not that they are living in, that they are wealthy. That's not the point. The point is they're living in self-centered luxury. The, you see the self-indulgent? The issue is when your wealth meets this self-centered lifestyle. And when it does, it begins to enslave you. And what he is saying is where it will always lead is to the oppression of the poor. Like, a, like looking at porn for the first time and you never think where it's going to lead you. It always leads to you places that you never thought imaginable. Exodus 16, I mean Ezekiel 16 Verse 46 is speaking to God's people. Listen to what he says. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. Do you see how that progresses? The poor. He, they have pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, and did not help the poor and needy. They always come together. What he's saying is, this is a poor decision. Why? Because you are just like an animal that is being fattened up for the day of slaughter. So Mike, you'll appreciate this illustration. So one of Mike's little, little cows is out there with all the other little cows. And Mike goes in there and says, come on, cow, I'm going to put you in the barn. He says, what's up with this? Put me up here in this special place. Mike starts giving them special food. Special food that no other cows is getting. He said, it's about time he realized my worth and value around here. I'm better than the rest of them cows up there mooing and all that stuff. He's, man, he's, he's even oriented to furniture in his little stall. Right? What is he saying? You're an idiot, you cow. Because all Mike's about to do is eat you. That's the illustration here. Sitting there going, it just doesn't make sense. It doesn't pay. You're saving all of this stuff and living life for yourself. And there's a day coming. And you're living life as if it's not true. 
Isaiah 65 and verse 12 says, I will destine you to the sword, and all of you shall bow down to the slaughter, because when I called, you did not answer. When I spoke, you did not listen. But you did what was evil in my eyes and chose what I did not delight in. So how is this day of slaughter going to work? Well, we'll talk about that later. What he's saying right now is it just doesn't pay. Living your life for yourself and for your comfort is a short-sighted decision if God is just, and he is. Notice the progression. Verse 6, number 4, mistreating others is a dangerous decision. It says, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person, and he does not resist you. Now, it's important to understand in the context now, for Jewish people to deprive a person of their ability to take care of their family is to murder them. To not give that guy his day's pay at the end of that day is to murder him because he has no ability to care for his family unless you give him his pay. You can't mistreat people and then not have a trickle effect into their life. Saying, you're doing this. You're murdering them by removing their ability to take care of the people that they are responsible to take care of. That's a dangerous decision. This brings up a spiritual picture of why God seems to use the most jacked up people to make the greatest impact in our lives. Listen to what he says in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 28. It says, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God uses the broken God uses the people that have done the worst, seen the worst, and been treated like the worst so that when God's grace comes on their life and they impact people for the kingdom, they cannot say, look at me. (laughs) We give God the glory for that. It just doesn't pay. And so, you see, he says it doesn't pay because of something he's pointed out through the whole thing. So now I want us to go and just look. There's two promises guaranteed. Four warnings to heed. Two promises guaranteed. The first one we see in verse 1. Judgment is coming. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. The famous R.G. Lee preached a sermon that has heard millions of times called Payday Someday. There is a day coming. And sometimes, listen, sometimes it's in this life, but you can be guaranteed it's in the next. God has ordained a principle called sowing and reaping. And every pagans and Christians alike know this, is, this, this happens. Even, even false religions come up with things like karma and this kinds of things to try to explain this God-ordained sowing and reaping. Your growth group's going to look at this. I just want to tell you the story, remind you of the story. Of Ahab, Naboth, and Jezebel. Do you remember that? It's in Second, First Kings and Second Kings. You see, Ahab and Jezebel was these people that James is talking about that lived life in self-indulgent luxury. They were the king, they were the queen, they had everything they wanted. Even when the people were suffering, they had it made. But Ahab looked over there and saw a garden that he wanted, and he and because the divine God had allotted the property. 
to Naboth. Naboth said, no, this is our land. This is our family. And I'm not selling my vineyard. And he wanted a vineyard, so he pouted. So Jezebel killed him. And next thing you know, Elijah came a knocking. You remember what he told Ahab and Jezebel? The place where the dogs came and licked up his blood. One day Ahab will lick up yours. And your wife, one day, within the walls of Jezreel, the dog's going to eat them. You can wait to growth group, or you can go home and read first and first and second Kings to figure out how that story ended. But I, I got, we know this, God doesn't make a promise that he does not keep. Sometimes judgment happens in this life because verse 4, look at back in James 5 verse 4, God has always been listening. They, as the laborers have been crying, he has been hearing. And God is just. Our Father is listening and He is going to act either in this life or in the next. Psalms 34, 17 says, When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. How does He deliver them? How do we know that one day what is wrong will be made right? Because He says in verse 5, there is coming a day of slaughter. And that's not our words. That's the Bible's words. The day to where all that who has done injustice and all the injustice will be made right. Jeremiah 12 verse 3 says this, But you, O Lord, know me. You see me and test my heart towards you. Pull them out like a sheep for the slaughter and set them apart for the day of slaughter. A little bit different language in other parts of the Bible. Second Peter chapter 2 speaks of what we call the day of judgment. A day of judgment. And just listen to what Peter says. Second Peter 2 and verse 9. It says, Then the Lord knows how to rescue... Listen to this connect. Listen to these two things together. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passions and despise authority. He though then goes on to, be, to talk about the people that is being reserved for this day of judgment. There's coming a day, either in this life or in the next. This next life is called the day of judgment. He goes on to say in 2 Peter 2, 19, it says, They promised them freedom. But they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. So the promise, you see, is that judgment is coming and justice is sure. Now you may not have felt this as a comfort yet. But that's just because maybe you haven't suffered enough. You've never felt the pains of the whip. You've never done something for the right reason and been persecuted for it. Because if you have, you take this promise as the best news in the world. Because there is things that's happened in my life and I have not yet seen them made right. What do we do? Justice is sure. Notice it says the righteous do not defend themselves. Why not? 
you know, why don't, you know, I'm from West Gastonia, you know. You come up against us, you're going to have a problem. You know what I mean? The The context is they can't. You with me? They're powerless. They have no voice. They have no resources. They are the baby in the womb. They have no ability to defend themselves. What do they count on? That the God of justice hears their cry and will answer their call. Oh, I got good news this morning. Listen to this. Psalms 99 verse 4. I, I prayed all week as I, as I thought about this, this, this one passage that we would be able to read this with new covenant ears. Psalms 99 and verse 4. The strength of the king loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Our greatest news in all the world is that justice and righteousness descended one day on Calvary. I have been keep hearing, and all through life we have heard from hate groups from the 50s after the Civil War on to the day, these hate groups that keep saying, we get into heaven simply because of who we are, because I'm white or because I'm black or because I'm Jewish. And here's what the truth of the Bible is. God places everybody under the penalty of sin. All have sinned and fell short of the glory of God. But all have the hope of eternal life because Jesus took the wrath of God, the justice of God on the cross for me and for you. Good news, brothers and sisters. Romans 5 and 9. Since therefore we now have been justified by His blood, much more we shall be saved from the wrath of God. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Much more now we are reconciled. Shall we be saved by His life? More than that, we, ought, we can rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. We believe in a God of justice because we have experienced mercy, though we all have deserved justice. We praise God for His justice. But in light of God's promises and justice, how shall we live? Romans 12 helps us. Romans 12, verse 19 It is simply, brothers and sisters, and I know most of us have lived very comfortable lives, but most of your brothers and sisters do not. They have never lived comfortable lives. They are not living comfortable lives now. And so this word goes out to the tired and beleaguered believer, beloved. Verse 19, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Verse 21. Important to understand this life. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. How are you supposed to deal with it if you're being taken advantage of? Is to understand this. God saw it. God cares about it. We forgive because we've been forgiven. 
And we give them to God to do what's right. And we simply get back on the mission God's given us to live. If not, brothers and sisters, you will find yourself in a pit that you cannot get out of. And so, as I pondered how to close the message, I could not think of a better way to ask you, are you prepared to live now in a post-Roe v. Wade world? Right? So, Roe v. You ought to go home and study that if you don't know what a big deal that is. In our lifetime? Are you kidding me? In this broken world? That happens? Absolutely. Are you ready for it? You see, that's part of the main idea if you look back at the top of the page. Because we have confidence in God's justice, we are free to fight for the powerless. How are you going to fight for the powerless? Are you ready for that? A little bit of a warning. You've already seen a little bit of it. I don't think you've seen anything yet. It's going to get more violent when things like this happens. You just need to be ready for it. You need to be calm. We must be grateful. But we also need to be people that fight for life. That means, are you willing to reorient your life around adoption or foster care? Are you willing to pursue the single moms that are overwhelmed? Are you willing to volunteer and help with the Pregnancy Resource Center? What's going to stop us? What is stopping us from being what I would say truly pro-life? Our comfort. Because to let anybody into your life for a lifetime is a life-changing decision. And that's what God calls us to. Everybody can help some way. Here's the question. We had to deal with at some point in time. If sharing the gospel, seeing someone come to Christ, and teaching them how to follow Christ, is the ultimate way we send treasure into the next life, then to get people into my life and into my family's life, is that not one of my greatest priorities? I thought about this last night. I thought it was worth reminding our, us as we close today. We are free today because our founding fathers pledged everything that they held valuable for that freedom and then was willing to fight for it. So what did it cost these 52 men? Well, listen to what they said. They unanimously wrote this, and for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. And then they went about giving that exact thing so that we could have the freedom that we now enjoy. And so, brothers and sisters, I would call you that if we're going to be people of the book, We must be people that sees injustice and moves to do something about it. And there's no greater act of injustice than robbing people of their very life. And so let's be people of life. If we're going to fight for the powerless, we cannot do less than to pledge that which is most valuable to us to accomplish the work that God has given us to do. The Bible says, do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good. Let's pray. And so now, Lord, we 
give this word and its message. Ask, Holy Spirit, Lord, that you apply it into our lives. Lord, none of our callings look exactly the same. We all have a part to play and a job to do, Lord. Much as we look at the things that are in front of us, either how we serve the church, how we renovate our space in the future, Lord, we all have a part to play in that. And so, Holy Spirit, we entrust you with that. We're not going to make idols out of anything. We are your people. And we long to be used. And so, Lord, I ask that you call and convict comfort Lord there is people in this room have experienced great injustice and have may have allowed that to become a seed of bitterness in their life oh God I pray for this fresh understanding at the cross that there is nobody that has committed more cosmic treason than I And that those in this room, but God, you paid that debt with the blood of your very son. That he willingly gave up for us. And so, Lord, we worship you. Because now, we have peace with you. And this changes the way I live with others. Changes the way I love others. It changes the way I handle my finances. It changes the way I love my kids. It it changes everything, God. And Lord, we give all of that to you now as we come to the tables to celebrate. As we come to the tables and remember that it was your son's blood that brought us peace. It was your son's blood that paid justice for us. It was your son that caused us to be able to be adopted into the very family of God. And so, Lord, as we come to the table, we come to the table as believers who believe by faith. That we are all in the family of God. No matter our color, our creed, or our economic status. That we all have peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ. And this we remember today. And we also remember as we come to the tables. That there will be a day when we will sit at your table together. And there will not be any more sin or injustice. We long for that day. But until then, Lord, we will remember it. And we will long for it. All the days of our life. Because we will dwell in the house of the Lord one day. But now, receive our worship, Lord. As we respond in our giving. And we respond with our worship. In Jesus' name. Amen.